Welcome to the Functional Breeding Podcast. I'm Jessica Heckman, and I'm here interviewing folks about how to breed dogs for function and for health, behavioral and physical. This podcast is brought to you by the Functional Dog Collaborative, an organization founded to support the ethical breeding of healthy, behaviorally sound dogs. The FDC's goals include providing educational, social, and technical resources to breeders of both purebred and mixed breed dogs. You can find out more at functionalbreeding.org or at the Functional Breeding Facebook group, which we work hard to keep friendly and inclusive. I hope you have fun and learn something. Hi, friends. Today I'm talking to Carolyn Kelly and Erica Pitlavani. Carolyn is a registered nurse with over 30 years of experience in human health, including in labor and delivery and mental health. She also holds a master's degree in nursing leadership. Carolyn runs a mixed-breed companion dog program called Old Mission Retrievers. Erica is an experienced behavioral consultant at Woof's Dog Training Center in Virginia. She runs the Boson Dog Project, a mixed-breed companion dog program, with her wife, Laura Sharkey. I got together with Carolyn and Erica to talk about what companion personalities look like in dogs and why the two of them focus their breeding programs on achieving those personalities. Welcome to the podcast, Erica, and welcome back, Carolyn. I'm so glad to have both of you here. Thank you for having us. I'm thrilled to be here, as always. Yeah. So let's start out with Erica, because she hasn't been here before. And Erica, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the dogs that you live with and a little bit about your breeding program. Absolutely. We've got, um, we've got our the kind of from oldest to youngest, we've got our border collie girl who was um, actually, a, she was actually from our phenomenal local shelter when she was little. Um, she, we've got the other pups in our house are girls from our breeding program. They are all mixes. We were, we are the bosun dog project. We refer to them as the bosuns. Um, and they are uh, at this moment all related to each other. So we've got uh, Zephyr, Kasha, and Talia, who is grandma, aunt, and and daughter, uh, who we who we have. Um, n- not all of them will necessarily be bred, but they're all part of the program. Um, and then we have uh, the the breeding program itself is the Boson Dog Project, and it is a companion dog breeding project where we are not concerned about a particular breed or breed type. We are breeding for health, and we are breeding for temperament. Um, very much uh, in in terms of companion temperament, easy to live with dogs, uh, social, um, and and things that are um, targeted toward kind of regular regular pet people being able to have just lovely dogs that they can have at their home. That is what our breeding program is about. Excellent, Carolyn. Same questions. Yes. Well, I live with five dogs currently. One is my retired uh, original foundation girl, Lucy, who is almost eight now in spade. And then I have Jasper, who is a very fun male who um, is not part of my breeding program. He's three and he is a golden doodle. And then I have two girls that are actively in line to be bred. One is Ruby, she's a golden doodle, and then her daughter, Lucy's granddaughter, Rose. And then I have an up and coming male from another breeder, wonderful breeder in Texas, um, Seventh Heaven Labradoodles. And he is he is very cool. He is almost 70% lab, but he's got a nice non-shedding coat. So he's, he's kind of fun for my bearded retriever goals. And I've got a lot of 
um, hopes for him. And yeah, that's everybody. And I'm Old Mission Retrievers. And my breeding program is open-minded to breed, but my primary focus is on retriever-type dogs with straight, shaggy, non-shedding coats. So classic retriever temperament, less hair. <laughs> and for those who listened to that and went, what is a bearded retriever? There is an entire podcast episode about it. It was an early one, so you'll have to hunt back through the archives. Um, but there's a, a whole podcast episode about that for anyone who's curious. All right. So you guys are, both of you are involved in breeding companion dogs. So that's that's sort of a new thing, I feel like, that people are, are doing now that, that traditionally, you know, we bred dogs for purposes of, you know, of work or sports or show, um, but not specifically to be companions, which is maybe surprising because a lot of them are companions. So do you guys want to tell me why, why would you, why would you breed a dog just for companionship? Absolutely. So my primary uh, job is not breeding. My, we, we do breeding on the hobby with my wife, Laura Sharkey started the, the program, um, but primarily we're behavior People. We are trainers and behavior consultants, and we've been working with uh, dog behavior for, you know, a, a couple decades. And one of the things that we see is that a lot of the dogs that come through our training programs are fabulous, fabulous uh, companion dogs and make great pets for people. And then a lot of the dogs that come through are not being particularly bred for companionship. They're being bred for lots of purposes, but maybe not always um, appropriate for uh, the kind of homes that people are living in to, to bring these dogs into. And so uh, you, when we think about uh, breeding dogs for companionship, we're really looking at um, breeding dogs that are specialized for the work or the job, the function of being uh, a great kind of house house pet um, versus maybe being out and, and doing um, other traditional working jobs. And so uh, getting dogs, um, sorry, it's getting dogs for the, for that purpose is, is uh, something that I don't know that we've put a lot of focus on. It's kind of been a second thought. Carolyn, what would you, how would you add to that? Well, just as a, as an aside, just as you were saying, Jessica, we have a people haven't traditionally bred dogs for companionship. I think it's important to remember that there are uh, some breeds that are specifically designed for companionship. A lot of the toy breeds are essentially um, intended to be lap dogs and have been bred for companionship. And a lot of those breeds are really do have nice temperaments. And some of them um, are great choices for um a mixed breed purpose bred companionship program because they do have a long history of being selected for temperament like Cavalier King Charles Spaniels and Bichons and a lot of the little lap dogs. Um, so I wouldn't say that nobody has ever bred for companionship, but I think that um, there are some, um, some limitations with breeding in, you know, a closed gene pool, a specific breed that make it harder to make companion temperament the absolute pinnacle focus of a breeding program uh, because people who are breeding to a specific breed standard have to put 
uh, rightly so, a lot of <clears throat> focus and priority on confirmation standards as far as aesthetics of a breed standard, the structure, uh, specific structure and size and <clears throat> color requirements involved with breeding to a breed standard. And that, um, you know, any breeding, you're, you're making choices about what your priorities are, right? You have a goal of, of taking two dogs in front of you and trying to create something different or a little bit better, <clears throat> excuse me, or more suited to your purpose. And when you have to include um, a breed standard that has a lot of physical characteristics, um, it limits your ability to put temperament at the absolute top of the list of things to select for. And so for me, that's a big reason why I say that's a, important to, you know, for some people to shift, and I want to do, to do that, to shift that to the top of the list above everything else, including anything physical. And I don't mean health, but I mean um, specific breed type issues. Does that make sense? That definitely makes sense. Um, so, well, so how did it, how would you say that we used to tell people how to search for a dog when we were sort of telling them to pick a breed and, and how's that different from how people tend to look for the right dog for them now? Well, I still hear a lot of advice to just choose a breed that suits your lifestyle. I think that's a pretty common, don't you, Erica, think that's pretty common advice given to people yeah. starting out to look for a dog? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I was actually just reflecting too on some of what you were saying. And I don't, and I think, I think even within closed gene pool breeding, I think, you know, I think this topic is still really relevant at, yeah. you know, as far as, as far as working with breeders who are really putting a heavy focus on companion temperaments and personalities. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, I think that's a huge, uh, point because one of the things that I that I hear that I think is a kind of a myth sometimes when we talk about companion dog breeding programs is I've seen people say you can't breed for temperament and and it and it was interesting when I heard you say we tell people to look for breeders and breeding programs that kind of look like they're going to match up with what your your goals are um, I think that's an exact argument or a counterpoint to the idea that you can't breed for temperament, because I think we know, um, we know that you can, of course you can. We've, right. you know, that's the purpose of breeding programs, quite honestly, is to, to breed, to get a, kind of the type of dog you want. If I want border collies who can listen for my whistle from two miles away, um, that is related to their, their, it's not their personality so much, but it's related to kind of who they are and how they function in the world, just as um, a temperament or personality would be related to a dog that's kind of laid back with strangers, mm -hmm. let's say. Um, if, if we're telling people that finding a dog that's going to work for them um, is about finding the right breed or the right breeder, I think that's pretty clear that we can, <laughs> we can breed, we can, we can choose dogs for what we're looking for. Um, I just hesitated on the breed and breeder part because um, one thing, if we're going to talk about whether we can breed for temperament, I, I had made some notes and I wrote down, we can, and I wrote down, we can't. Because we can breed for temperament, I think, 
in individual dogs and individual lines. And I don't think we can breed for temperament in the sense that we can say labs are all X or German shepherds are all Y. Um, if we look across a breed, we're going to have a huge range of individual um, temperament types or personality types within that breed. Um, but if we look down to the individuals, family types and lines of particular dogs, I think you, you can get a lot of predictability in um, what kind of dogs you're going to get. If you're breeding two really chilled out dogs to each other, you're likely to get a chilled out litter of puppies. Um, versus two really intense dogs. And we can see this very clearly as well across breed lines when we look at sure. show lines versus working lines and of, of different breeds of dogs. Um, and so, yeah, anyway, I, I, I feel like I might've gone a little bit down a rabbit hole with that, but but um, I think that ties back into the big question of, of why breed for companionship and can we breed for companionship? Um, yeah, of course we can. We can see that we can see those differences pretty clearly. Yeah, I think that's a big sure. question that I see a lot of whether whether you can breed for particular personalities and whether whether you can breed for companionship and whether when you're breeding mixed breeds, you can have any kind of predictability about the puppy. So you touched on all of that a little bit, but maybe it makes sense to to dig into it a little bit more uh, because you did say, well, of course we can breed for personality or temperament, um, but I think it's worthwhile sort of unpacking that a bit. Um, it's, it's, that is a thing that I know I've, I've seen it out there enough that I think some people really believe that you can't. Um, and I think like mixes, you mean, you can't, um, I think, if you're mixing. So I think there's two separate things. I think there's, there's the statement that you can't really breed for personality or temperament, no matter what, that that's all in how you raise them. Right. Um, so there's that statement. And then separately, there's the statement that mixes are inherently incredibly unpredictable and you never have any idea what you're going to get. So taking the first one about um, breeding for personality, I, just weighing in as a behavioral geneticist, um, I think it's important to recognize that it's not the same thing as breeding for coat color, right? And no one is saying that it is. So for coat color, it's definitely pretty much all genetics. And mm -hmm. you can often do a genetic test ahead of time and know what you're likely to get from the puppies. Um, and it's very predictable because there's only a couple few genes that are affecting what's going on with behavior. There's dozens, hundreds, thousands of genes affecting it. There's a big effective environment. So it is definitely not the same thing as saying, I can guarantee you I'm going to be producing a yellow puppy. Um, but what maybe you two could talk a bit about what kinds of predictability you you feel like you can see um in your lines which maybe also helps go into the idea that it's it's hard to to do this especially hard to do this with mixes so the I, question yeah go ahead Erica. yeah i i think i would like to speak broader than our breeding project we've bred you know we've bred three litters of puppies and i can tell you anecdotally what i've seen there um but Bigger than that, I don't think I've mentioned um, that. So, so my my primary or primary job is is trainer behavior. We specialize in puppies. We do. We have done puppy socials before puppy socials were cool. Um, we've we we do puppies in daycare. We do puppies in training classes. We do puppies, 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 and and most importantly, we um, also get to see those puppies grow up. 
So we have daycare where puppies come as puppies. And, and sometimes we've got, you know, I've got 12 year old dogs who've been coming to us since they were tiny. Um, so longitudinally, I'm not necessarily seeing all of the puppies parents and and always seeing exactly their lines which i think is important to part of that question um but seeing where puppies are coming from and how they develop we can we can see really strong trends in what type of breeding and type type of breeders puppies are coming from and then how they move through the world. So I can't, you know, I, I can't, I kind of am going back to the, um, the lines in certain breeds more than even just looking again at my own small numbers, very small numbers in my own breeding program to see if, you know, if puppies are coming from, you know, um, working breeders, if puppies are coming from what we would want to quote unquote call, you know, backyard breeders, they're, you know, just sort of whatever breeders, um, they're, they're coming from some Amish breeders, they're coming from pet stores, they're coming from show breeders. Um, I do get to see a really strong trend in what different breeds of dogs might look like when they're coming from different places. And I can say we can, we can see pretty big personality differences. Like sometimes they don't even seem like the same breed of dog uh, when they're coming from these different locations. And I don't know if this, do you feel like that answers that question or did I just repeat myself? No, I think- No, it, you didn't. Okay. It answers it. Uh, Carolyn, did you want to weigh in on that? Well, I think I don't disagree with anything Erica's saying. I think um, we're kind of reiterating um, a lot of the things that, you know, were, <clears throat> when were we all talking about the big study that came out that was so controversial that um, was about whether or not you can predict behavior by breed. And that continues to be, you know, a, a difficult topic to talk about. I think that inherently, intuitively, we all know that there are generalizations you can make about breeds. I think some of the things I've read about I'm not going to be able to quote where, but about uh, certain drives that those are more predictable by breed than, than the personality kind of things that we look for in the companion program, like sociability or reactivity. That kind of thing is not as predictable as, I mean, herding ability, herding instinct, or um, what is another one that's, really retrieving. more of the, retrieving yeah yeah the, that are probably more heritable than some of the um companion personality things now that doesn't mean to say that we can't breed for companion personality but it that those are more trackable by breed i guess that's how i would put it because if you go way back to the kind of ancestral roots of the selective breeding or the regional existence of different types different groups like the herding group the gun dog group, those maybe as groups, when you look at their drives, those are more predictable. Um, but well, the, here, here's would a question. you say, would you agree with that, Erica? Are, are they more heritable or are they more trackable? Maybe more trackable. That's because, what I meant to because, say. Yeah. Well, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah so, I, and I think as, I think that's part of the problem that we don't really know how to define some of these behavioral qualities, right? Yeah, that's what, what were, what that's a big problem Jessica? in behavioral genetics. So, as as one of the yeah. authors on that paper, let me let me just yeah. put in a, a couple statements. One is that we did find um, more predictability by breed group than by breed. Right. Right. That's what, um, yeah. Yep. And for sure, there were there were things that we measured and things that we didn't measure, right? So there were some things like our border collies. Do they tend to be more noise sensitive? Well, we didn't really measure that. Right. Um, but one thing that we did measure was human sociability. So mm-hmm. how much the dog likes being around humans. Um, and that was highly heritable. So just shockingly highly heritable, which is really good news for people who are breeding for companion dogs. And I want to take a second. necessarily trackable by breed, right? Even but not necessarily trackable so... by breed. So, well, right. golden okay. retrievers were particularly mm-hmm. highly, um, mm-hmm. ra- ra- ranked very high on that scale, right? Particularly, right. but not all of them, right? So when you compare right. golden retrievers to mutts, um, which we sort of would use mutts as the like, well, this is sort of the population of, you know, it's it's not likely to be all one thing or all the other. Golden retrievers are much more likely to be human social than mutts, but... Um, it was still no, it was nowhere near hundred percent of them. Like they still scored all along the scale. And so I think that's, that's what we mean when we say that you can, and you can't breed for a particular personality trait is you can increase the likelihood highly. Right. And that, right. um, and this is true in purebreds and in mixes, you can increase the likelihood massively, but you cannot, um, guarantee it ever. So absolutely right. I do want to weigh in about what the term heritability means, because a lot of people think they know what it means. I'm using it loosely. Sorry. Yeah, well, it's it's fine. It's it's um, my mission in life is to try to explain it to people. But to be fair, I had to come to I learned what it meant very well three separate times before it really sank in. So I don't really expect people to understand. But a good way in a conversation like this, a good way of thinking about it is whether it's something that you can selectively breed on. So coat color is highly heritable because it's really easy to, to say, based on who your parents are, I can predict what your coat color is going to be. That's something that's highly heritable. And then personality traits are sort of, they're definitely heritable, but not as much as coat color. So based right. on your parents' personalities, we can make a prediction about what your personality is going to be like. Yes, true, but not as strong a prediction as we can with coat color. Um, and so that's, I think, maybe the easiest way to think about it. Um, and so, so, and, and in that context, then human sociability was surprisingly highly heritable. I think we got it at like 68% and personality traits rarely go above 20%. They're more around 10 or 15. So um, I think 68% for that, I was like, yes. Uh, but it's also, it's also due to the population that we looked at, right? Like we were looking at companion dogs so that... Um, what was the smallest breakdown was, so you, you had, you said you had breed types and breed, breeds, individual breeds. We had and individual breeds and then we grouped that? those into breed groups, but we did okay. not have lines within breeds. So we did not have the ability to say, this is a working lab. You know, this is a sport, a sport bred lab or a field bred lab or a bench bred lab. We couldn't do that. And I personally believe that's a large part of why the finding came back that a breed wasn't predictive. Um, and a lot of people took that to mean, was that mean genetics doesn't do anything? It's like, no, 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 it's <laughs> not at all what that means. <laughs> what it means is that breeds are actually fairly diverse. 
um, which we all know, right? When you look at labs and you're like, well, they're bred for this or this or this, and you don't really expect them to be exactly the same thing. Uh, and those of us who are in dogs, obviously, for many breeds, we can eyeball them and be like, well, obviously, that's this type of, of this breed, right? Um, but so, so, but it, what, it, what it told me, though, is, is that very much when you are looking for the right dog for you, looking for a breed that matches up or a mix that matches up to your lifestyle is a good start. But looking at the actual breeder and what the actual breeder is producing, there is no way around that. That is critically important because different breeders are producing different things within the same breeder mix. Right. Well, and that goes back to what Carolyn said, because that, that is advice I've given for years, mm -hmm. is if, if you're looking for a particular dog, you should go to the breeder, you should meet not just the, the mother, but you should try to meet the, you know, an aunt and meet a, you know, meet a cousin and meet, you know, meet several of that, of that breeder's dogs, because that is the most informative about what kind of dog you are actually going to get, um, which I think is, exa is, is exactly, I think to Carolyn's point, that is, that is the most predictive thing I can tell anybody uh, as they're trying to get a particular kind of dog. Yeah. And going back, I guess, I don't know if I'm jumping around, but going back to the question that I think we started with a few minutes ago, why breed for companionship? Because when you tell people, or, you know, I, I spent most of my life, not as a dog person, but as a pet owner. And I remember several searches for dogs starting out with, you know, choose a breed that suits your lifestyle and then you start looking at breeds and it's, well, this dog was bred to pull sleds and this one is for hunting and this one is for guardianship and, you know, which doesn't mean that that's all those dogs can do. Obviously, many of them exist as companions, but I think I, it just jumps out at me as just quite an obvious uh, mismatch that, you know, some more than... 75%, I would guess, of all dogs are just purchased by people who want to live with them in their homes. And these historical purposes, although they have value and are of historic interest and often track to different qualities in dogs that we love in terms of trainability or doing sports with them or the kinds of things they like to do with us, which is wonderful, that is, it is not the top of most people's list to have a dog that can retrieve a duck or herd sheep. For some people, yes, and it's a beautiful thing to see dogs doing that kind of work, but most dogs aren't going to do that kind of work. And so it just begs the question, why not breed for the specific thing that we're going to ask the dog to actually do, instead of trying to find the ones who are least capable of of doing, you know, that's, that's kind of, you hear this a lot that, that pets or companions are the the sort of, they don't say leftover, but that's kind of, you know, they're the byproduct of breeding for a different purpose, which is true, I think. You know, you, you're breeding for for confirmation and so many of the dogs don't make the cut and so there they can be a pet. But that begs the question to me, well, why are we not, why is why don't we have some dogs where the main thing that we are looking for out of the breeding, the primary goal, Aside, from, I mean, yes, health, but aside from looking a certain way or being able to do a certain type of field trials, the main thing that we're seeking is that easygoing pet temperament. And it's not a byproduct, it's a goal. And that's, that's why I do it. 
So that might be a great time to ask about what exactly do you mean when you talk about this companion temperament or personality? Like what are the goals? What are your yeah. goals? Yeah. Yeah. Do you what want kind to of, start kind of with traits? that, Erica? Sure. Um, we are looking for, you know, for, for a dog that we're going to breed, the, the goals that I have, the, that Laura and I have in our breeding program are, I want a dog that is, can do activities, but can go lie down. I want a dog that is pretty happy to see strangers. I, ideally, I would want puppies that go running up to seeing, to want to go see new people. Um, with, you know, if there's any alert barking, it's just sort of excitement alert barking as opposed to get off my property alert barking. Um, I would like dogs that are really comfortable with other dogs as well. They don't, that's not a hard requirement, but, you know, people want to be able to bring dogs to their family's homes for Thanksgiving or go camping with their buddies and have everybody bring their dogs. Um, and I want dogs that are handleable so that, you know, although I don't need the dogs to be held around by children, I want to feel like it's safe. <laughs> if, if, if somebody does mm -hmm. grab them the wrong way, that there's not going to be a problem with that. Um, I, and, and that they are, you know, ideally can have their nails clipped and their ears examined. If they're going to be easygoing at the vet, um, those are some of the, probably the main things that I'm looking for, um, adaptability in new environments. We want to go, you know, people, it may or may not always be realistic to, to say that people should be able to take their dogs everywhere with them. But what if they want to, uh, you know, would the dog be, would this be a dog who says, yay, let's go do fun stuff? Or is this a dog who would be horrified by the idea of going and hanging out at the kid's baseball game? Um, so, so for me, those are, that's kind of encapsulates the traits that I'm looking for. And I want to just, um, make sure, cause you, you didn't say this, I know you meant it, but I also know some mm. people will be concerned, um, mm. that I would append within reason to a lot of the things that you said. So, um, dogs should be yes. good around kids, obviously within reason. We're not expecting that you're going to breed dogs that the child can be riding the dog and pulling on its ears and kicking the dog and the dog would never do anything, right? That's unreasonable. That's right. And, and quite frankly, we don't breed so many dogs that that anybody anybody who's got those kind of kids may or may not make our particular and, cut <laughs> to get one of those dogs well, either. <laughs> in defense of children, <laughs> yes, yes. I will say that I yes. had a couple of those and they might've been those kind of kids, whatever that means exactly. But kids <laughs> are unpredictable and uh, don't always exhibit the best judgment. You know, I, I waver in my thought process about whether it is a great idea to have a young dog in a house with very small children. I don't, I'm not, I'm not judging anyone who does it. And I think it's wonderful. And I know a lot of people have really great experiences with raising dogs and kids together. I didn't do that personally. I waited until my kids were a little bit older. I just think it's a lot to track and both human children and dogs have a lot of needs when they're young and it's can be a lot to juggle, but I don't judge what other people decide to do. So yeah, yeah I think that um, I think that a dog that adores children and is, you know, here, this goes to something that, you know, that just out of the blue conversational, um, in terms of heritability of traits and what we might be looking for in companions. One thing that's interested me a lot is like body sensitivity, um, and how heritable that is. It feels like it runs in, I can see the differences 
in dogs right out of the gate. Some are just mm -hmm. clumsy and crashing into things and don't mind if you sit on them, hug on them, pull on their ears. They seem to be, and the field line lab, but in particular, my original foundation girl, just very low body sensitivity. You know, it goes along with a lot of leash pulling too. It seems to track together because they don't mind the pressure. And so they don't care. They'll just <laughs> drag you around when they're not trained. But there's a lot of benefits to that in terms of living with kids because they're just kind of oblivious to being touched, sat on, squashed. They kind of enjoy it almost. They're dogs that like to be hugged. So that's something that I want to get more data about, but I feel like body sensitivity um, might be really heritable. And, and it might be an advantage for people who do want to live with dogs and kids to have a dog that's not too touch sensitive. A, um, but yeah, within, I, I, but, I agree completely. 100%. But nobody's arguing that a dog should be able to be abused by children or unsupervised or unmanaged. Absolutely right. or, not. No. Or yeah. hauled to the farmer's market without any proper preparation for how to behave or anything like that. That's so right. I just want to make sure right. people know that right. Erica's no, not yeah. saying that she's going to breed and, zombie dogs. <laughs> and to be very clear, we 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 have placed, we will absolutely place puppies with, in homes with kids. With they, we've got Me some too. puppies that have, that have gone with, with very successfully yeah. with kids. Um, yeah. And we expect kids to do dumb things and we expect parents to try to still manage as best mm -hmm. they can to protect the dog. <laughs> Both of those yeah. things are important. <laughs> Sarah, Sarah, I think it was Sarah Strumming had somebody on her podcast the other day talking about her behavior program for dogs and kids together. And she said, dogs and kids should be siblings and they should be managed just like siblings. I thought that was actually a really mm -hmm. good explanation, like as opposed to teaching the kids to train the dogs or dominate the dogs that parents need to think of the kids and the dogs as needing supervision and management when they're together and everybody's needs have to be advocated for. Yeah, I like that. I love that. My, mm -hmm. my feeling is generally, if I'm wondering if it's going to be a successful situation, I look at the parents, not the kids, right? Is, is the parent the sort That's of person exactly who's right. going to keep an eye on the situation and not, you know, not leave the two-year-old unsupervised, the two-year-old human unsupervised with a six-month-old dog, right? Um, or is, is the, why right? I say that sounds awfully hard to me. Having had two-year-old <laughs> humans who were very fast and not predictable about where they were in the house, it's difficult for me to imagine a puppy and right. a two-year-old. But if I, you can do it, more right. power to you. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, but, exactly. And so understanding that there will be, that things will happen for sure. Right, um, they will. But also <laughs> understanding, <laughs> right, but also understanding that there are things to attempt to avoid. Right. Which Absolutely. there are yeah. certainly people, I think, who go into the situation being, you know, with the expectation that the dog should just tolerate everything and that they don't need to provide any supervision. And that's not yeah. reasonable. Yeah. Either. And, well, I like and I the think fact the that my lab, oh, but I, was, I don't mean to interrupt you. Make sure you hold your thought. Let me get this one out. My labs that have the low, the, that lab tendency for low body sensitivity is great for kids. But what is not great for kids is that they put everything, not the kids, but the dogs put every single thing in their mouth for two years and chew it to shreds. And so it, I don't know how, if you have toddlers, they have toys everywhere all the time. I feel like that would be very difficult. Yeah. But <laughs> Speaking yeah, of which, ahead, one, of, one of Carolyn's, one of the dogs Carolyn bred is at my house today. He's overnight. Oh. Griswold is here overnight. Did he destroy and anything? I, no, he isn't destroy. He doesn't generally destroy anything, but I did That's remember, good. I did forget that when, if I leave my phone anywhere, he will pick it up and walk around with it. Yeah. <laughs> so yes, I, I'm going to back up what you're saying there. That's adorable. Yeah. 
They're very mouthy. <laughs> yeah. So I, I have. Yeah, and they're all they're all like that. I mean, I you know I have used uh, several you know different sires, different females. I'm only four litters in, but I have different dogs from different parents, and they all are very you. You do Mouthy. have retriever in the name. I are retrievers, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, I've been selecting for, soup, like, the strongest natural retrieve puppies is one of the things that I've been looking for. But it, that's why they carry the phone around, probably. <laughs> so I have a I have a question that um, slides in perfectly here from a Patreon subscriber. But before I ask it, I want to make sure, Carolyn, did you have anything to add to what Eric to Erica's list of what looks like a good companion type personality. Um, well, just on the those are all the really great positive. There's a few like deal breaker negatives, I guess. I don't know if that's worth bringing up, but I yeah. feel like I feel like resource guarding has a lot of environmental and learning components, but I also have seen it completely out of the blue with a dog who was managed the same way as my other dogs, not a dog I produced, but a dog that I brought in as a potential breeding prospect. And she developed some serious resource guarding with the other dogs and I hadn't managed her any differently. And that was, she didn't hurt anybody. So it wasn't like you couldn't live with her. She, as a dog, I would have, it would have been fine. But as a breeding prospect, that was a big no. I feel like a lot of aggression situations revolve around the dog's response to resources. Resource guarding is a natural behavior, but there seems to be a lot of variety in the natural inclinations of dogs as far as how strongly or violently they feel compelled to guard things. And that's a big deal for me, not not having any of that. I have very low threshold for that. Um, yeah. That's, you know, sociability is the biggest thing. I think that their comfort level, I think I'm just reiterating what you said, their, their natural tendency out of the gate without training to be inclined to want to spend time in new environments and around new people and new dogs. Just that enthusiasm for the world and the people and for strangers. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree. I'd, since we're um, calling out other trainers, Sue Sternberg, I think was the one who said that if the dog mm -hmm. is sociable, mm -hmm. that for her is the biggest green flag that right. any other problems can probably be surmountable versus if the dog is just not interested in people, it's just going right. to be very hard to work with. Yeah. Right. And, and Sue, Sue was very influential in our thinking for everything that, you know, we've, we've done with our program and yeah, she's great building she the program. Yeah. But a lot. Yeah. She, she's, um, is really a um, forerunner and early adopter of a lot of these ideas and deserves a lot of credit for, for my thinking too. I've really so much credit taken a lot yeah. from her work. Agreed. I've, I've been really appreciative of how supportive she is of just of the idea of breeding for good pets. Um, she's quite, quite honestly, it was her idea. I mean, she's the oh, one wow. that planted cool. this little seed in our head, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, whatever it was, she's, it, it, it all came from Sue originally, our, our whole idea to even do this. Nice. Um, and, and she has, yeah, she's been, she's been so influential and so supportive. Agreed. So usually I ask Patreon questions at the end, sort of in a rapid fire manner, but I had a bunch of really lovely questions from our, my Patreon supporter, Anna, 
uh, beautifully nerdy questions. She was really interested in how you guys run your programs. And so since we were listing traits, one of the questions she wanted to know was, do you find some of those traits to be more heritable than others? So let me frame that in the sense of, is it easier to select for some of those traits than for others? Or, or are there some that you feel like no matter how you you know, put two parents with those traits together, they just never show up in the puppies? What has what your experience been? Um, I, I'm not sure. I think that, <clears throat> I think that I will just make a general, just a, a general observation that I have about the types of dogs that we tend to select thinking that they are amazing pets who are acting as amazing pets. And I see this not just in my program, but, um, a lot of the breeders that I'm most familiar with are doodle breeders, quote unquote, uh, people who have been breeding poodle mixes. And and in in deference to poodle mix breeders, there are quite a few of them who have been doing this and breeding for pet quality for quite a while. Um, the thing that I see that is a struggle is uh, that the softer dogs tend to want to revert to a it's easy to get too much fear. I, that's the biggest struggle that I see in pet breeder programs so far. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure why, because it doesn't mean that they're breeding fearful dogs. Sometimes the fear is, seems to, the way it is inherited is not, it's like you say, I mean, obviously we know these things are super complicated and there are multiple genes involved, but you sometimes you can get more fearful puppies from less fearful parents for some reason, even when they're super well socialized. Um, and I'm not sure what that's about. It might be partly about COVID and the timing of when I've been a breeder over the last several years, but um, <clears throat> yeah, that, that's that's just an, an observation. I'm not sure it answers the question. No, the I question think, is what's most heritable, right? Right. And so I think what you're saying or is, so easy. I would, I would turn that trait resilience. I know that the, yeah. the guide and assistance dog breeders prioritize that almost above anything else that for them is yeah. key. And I, I honestly, yeah. I think yeah. for a companion dog personality, it's pretty key as well. Um, I know that they've and had it's, some it's luck. almost not the same as sociability. Right, it's, it's not. Almost, right, right, it's not. No. It, it, yeah, right. So you you want a dog that's social and loves people, but you also need a dog that's brave and bombproof. Yeah. Right. right. So my dog and, Jenny, my dog Jenny, mm -hmm. lovely. I adore Jenny. Um, mm -hmm. She really likes people. Actually, she thinks people mm -hmm. are pretty cool. She likes being around them. She's also terrified of new people. So you yeah. don't really realize at first how much she likes people. Um, yeah. but she does. And so those are, it's, a, there's an interesting conflict in those two traits in her, right? But they're clearly two very separate traits. She is extremely not resilient, although her resiliency has improved much over the 13 years I've had her now. Um, but she's always really liked people. She just, I couldn't even see that at first, um, until she started she becoming was braver. Yeah. 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 So bravery is a challenge. It's one of the key I, I guess I'm going to say that as I'm learning, I'm adding resilience slash bravery to the top of the list along with social. It's, and it, it is complex how it is inherited, clearly, because it's, it's not a direct line from, it seems to be complex. That's all I'm going to say. Yes. Yeah, well, I wonder too I how, much, 
how much what you're seeing is about the breeds that you're using as well, um, which is another question that Anna had. Yeah. Um, and yeah. we don't have to be done with the first question. I imagine that Erica no. has some stuff to say, but it's interesting that you talk a lot, um, Carolyn, about the Labrador characteristics of the dogs. That's what I'm trying to get. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they tend to be highly social, highly resilient, and highly mouthy. Right. <laughs> Right, um, and it may be hard for you to separate those things because you have so much lab in your breeding population. Um, so I guess maybe how do we to separate separate because what? well because the labs tend to come as a package with those three things. Oh yeah, I'm not trying to get rid of them, and, all the, and you're not trying to get record. rid of them. No, of course not. <laughs> but you're I figure seeing that goes them. With it. But you're yeah. seeing them. You're seeing them handed to you as a package, whereas mm -hmm. Erica is breeding a variety of. She's, she has a larger variety of breeds in her mix right. than you do. Right. And so right. I'm wondering if she's not seeing the package quite as much, but sort of individual traits right. that she has to pull in. I don't know. Erica, does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think so. And I, well, and, and it does, it's interesting because my answer to that question is related to what you just said, which is we have so many different breeds going on. There are some things that we don't have a trend on. Mm. We did have one litter. I, I will say that was what Carolyn was was describing, where we had two res two parents that were more reserved, and we ended up mm -hmm. getting more fear than what we mm -hmm. expected to get from that litter. That was unfortunate. Um, so that was something that that was a lesson learned. You know, just like what Carolyn was saying. But the things that 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 I can tell you are the same with all of you know we term the bosons, um, even though they're not all the same breed, exactly. Um, they have very similar play styles. They all do uh, this paw. They're very pawsy. <laughs> and so there's some person. Yeah, there's is, like, like is the that is that maybe is there are there you have one or two breeds that track through everybody though, right? From everybody's your foundation got letters? everybody's got some border collie and some lab in them. But I don't know that I think of. Aussiness is being a train no. of either of those breeds. And so I think it just goes back to um, right dog. now, everybody's, everyone's yeah. related to our, our, you know, our, our original mama dog, all, all three litters are related to her. Was so she I think it's, yep. <laughs> so yeah, I think, she, you know, so that carries <laughs> through. And, yeah. you know, and so, so there are ways in which they're different from each other. Um, but per, their personalities are not that different. Uh, the way that they, again, the way that they play with each other, the way they interact. We have also other puppies come besides our, just our three that are, that live here. We have other dogs in and out all the time. Um, along with Griswold. I said, we had a, you know, staying with us. Um, one of our, um, uh, puppies from our second litter is staying with us today that they're, they're a package deal. Um, and so she's in, we've got other puppies that come and board with us for, uh, you know, a night or a week or whatever. So I get to see them all so many of them regularly and yeah they they are all excited to see each other they like to play with each other because they all sort of speak the same language mm -hmm. um they're not all the same in some of the other ways we described they're not all the same social sociability they're not all the same on confidence level um they, they but so, you know so the things that we want to be super predictable are different they have different you know different parents and different uh, there, but, but there are still some personality traits that are so similar. Um, and it's really clear that they're family, you know, they're really clear that yeah. they're all together. So I don't know if that answers absolutely anything for Anna or anybody else, but it's interesting. Right. It is. Um, yeah, I just, I'm just thinking how I want to 
go 20 years into the future and ask you that question again. <laughs> so well, it'll be really interesting. Well, I think, yeah. Well, we I have think more data points. Right. And I think it's interesting. I think, you know, we've, you've probably been, you've been a dog person longer than me, Erica, but we've been breeding this, our own, you know, lines a similar length of time. And I find that I, I see certain things that, that it's interesting, like they track together that I see a thing and it's not necessarily the trait I'm looking for, but it reminds me of that like, things travel in groups, I guess is what I'm saying, you know, and I, I think that is true. And I think it kind of goes back to, there's that whole idea that form follows function, right? So you see a dog that looks like a dog you knew and you want to think that it's going to act the same way. And that's not exactly true, but there are also things that go together. And that mouthy retriever, uh, bring you everything, show you their toys, um, a lot of mouthy displacement uh, behaviors, those all they do track together with a lot of that lab gregarious sociability. So yeah, it's interesting to watch families of dogs for sure and see what, what does and doesn't track. So when and I don't looking... think that's terribly different than what, what traditional breeders in a, in a specific breed probably see as well. I don't think it's that different. So when you're looking there. for dogs to bring into your program, how much are you looking at the particular breed and how much are you looking at the particular dog? I think I'm asking Erica this more because I think mm -hmm. Carolyn has a pretty limited set of breeds that she works with. Yeah. Um, very much the personality of the, of the dog and very little on the breed. Um, we're really trying to, to select, um, select for that, that joie de vivre, that social, that sort of social butterfly. And, and what we're looking for ideally is we're looking for, we're looking for social, but doesn't necessarily need to go see everybody. So we're not necessarily trying to go for the dogs that, you know, desperately want to go greet, like not the super, super duper social, which is how we ended up honestly with the, with the litter that had the fear was we had to. Well, that's what I wonder is if you can thread reserved. that needle. Yeah. I don't, I yeah. don't know about threading that needle. I'm still trying to figure that out. I mean, there's and I think, the ideal and I think dog, no... the ideal dog doesn't cross the street and pull you down the road to meet people like Lucy does ideally. However, if we, Breed the dog that's more reserved. Do the women then overshoot mm -hmm. and go into cautious, and it's then in, stranger it's danger? Incredibly <laughs> difficult. So I was. Yeah, I, I've told this story many times, but it really made an impression on me. Where I was at a guide dog school where they were testing thirteen-month-old mm -hmm. Labradors mm -hmm. that they had bred, and they had mm -hmm. been selecting for exactly the behavioral traits that they wanted for quite a while, and with. Um, you know, they had an amazing program where they were testing them carefully and keeping track of all the traits and making really informed breeding choices. And so what I saw there was that they were able to push the dogs in particular directions with quite some success, but then they would be full on, like, so they were full on about like resilience and lack of fear. Right. And so right. they pointed out to me then that they started getting these dogs that like one of the tests was the dog comes running up to you and you like open an umbrella into the dog's face. And you kind of want the dog to flinch back from that a little bit. Right. And they said they got <laughs> some of these dogs got to where they would just blunder on in um, yeah, because they had bred. <laughs> right. Right. And so like, how do you know, you know, I think that's just part of it. Like, I don't think you I can think you know just, ahead of I time. I think you have, you have to 
circle the target mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and some of the dogs are going to fall in the hole and some aren't but you're never going to and hopefully I mean, there are different does a hundred percent yeah right and hopefully there are different homes for different dogs too right, right. like that's right some people or, don't mind if the dog blunders into the umbrella and some people don't mind if the dog is a little bit more skittish um well probably most pet homes would be okay with all of those the umbrella, dogs. Yes. The, yeah <laughs> the the target range for being a seeing eye dog is very narrow i mm. mean they are that is you know a lot of the dogs who would fail at being a seeing eye dog would still be well within the range of pretty wonderful companion animals right so we have a little i think we have a little bit broader i think it's okay to have a little bit of variability and I'm, i am not trying to aim for a hundred percent exactly the same dog just within a range of a great dog to live with who doesn't have any deal breaker type of traits that make it a miserable experience <laughs> for anybody the dog or the people right is that what you think, Erica? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, if I if like like to me a fail is if the dog if the dog really should be on behavior meds if the, you know, right. if, the if the if the person or what I you know one of the things I say is I want you to train your dog, but I don't want your dog to need a trainer. Right. If if right. you ha if you are going to a trainer because you are like, oh my god, this dog's making me crazy we better get it trained right. <laughs> then we have then i have maybe not done my job properly um i i i want you to train it because that's just good good process practice. not because yeah. yeah good practice not because it's a, a desperate situation right um i'd like i'd like to come back too because i think i think a lot of this ties back also and i love uh carolyn your your description of circling the target um you you'd mentioned the the body sensitivity earlier and i was uh -huh. thinking we have body sensitivity. We also have things like noise sensitivity and other environmental sensitivities. And I think right. this is another thing that, that we, we want to sort of thread that needle, circle the target, is we want, we want, we, Laura and I, like dogs that are a little bit more sensitive um, because they tend to be more focused on us. And as you know, we're trainers, we like dogs right. that notice what we're doing and pay attention and are aware of their surroundings. And also if we say things like, Hey, please stop that. They're like, Oh, sorry. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I yeah. will. I'll stop mm -hmm. it right now. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the more you dial, uh, down on the sensitivities, like they're, you know, they're, they're more tolerant of nonsense, less sensitive. Um, you get dogs that might be much better in a family environment because we don't have kids running around. Um, my sensitive dog, my most sensitive dog, who's the border collie, not part of the breeding program. You can't, Laura can't watch sports and she can't watch the news. Cause if she goes, Oh, or, Hey, get, get it in the goal or whatever she yeah. wants to yell at the television. <laughs> the border collie is on my head. Upset. This is true. Yeah. This is true of any of our border collies. I had border a boxer collies. like that. that was, yeah. I had a boxer for years who was a delightful dog, but oh my gosh, you couldn't get in an argument in the same room as Hammer. He was just, oh my gosh, yeah. what's wrong with mom? And he was shaking and it was terrible. Yeah. All right, <laughs> Everyone had to be in a good mood all the time. Again, my border collie. The dog. 
My border collie border would co- bark. Is the the ice pick bark? The ice pick in the ear bark? He would bark. Oh, so whenever yeah. Chris and I would have an argument, he would start barking, and I would turn around and be like, "We need to have this conversation. Let us have this conversation." Sometimes married couples need to work things out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So right. So our previous border collie, we would call it a border collie hat. You know, we'd call it a dog hat because you know, I'd be like, "I'm wearing the dog hat because hockey's on." Um, and you know, That's and I too sensitive. Like, Erica. He's so sensitive, right? He's so sensitive. <laughs> what a good but, hat. You know, he was he was great to train with. He was my KPA dog for with Karen Pryor Academy, you know. Yeah. But um, but that's too sensitive. And then we've got the dogs that blunder into the umbrella, and mm-hmm. that's maybe not sensitive for me personally, not sensitive enough. Um, but for a lot of families, that's maybe exactly the kind of sensitive they need. They don't that dog doesn't care if the dog the kid lays on them. Whereas right. my, the border collies are like, there's a child 10 feet away from me. I'm, you know, <laughs> I need to watch it. <laughs> um right. and so right. So finding what that what that middle ground is is I think the the challenge that we're always working toward. Right. Or or what is the middle ground? What do you want? I like personally a dog that's a little more on the sensitive side. Um, I think Carolyn might like a dog that's a little on the less sensitive side. Um, and, you know, what our puppy people, the, the people that we're placing puppies with are going to be all over the place, too, on that. Like sensitive dogs for myself, to be honest. Um, Rose, Lucy's granddaughter that I have right now, she's on the more body sensitive, never really pulled on the leash. A fascinating thing. Like, you don't have to teach her not, like, she doesn't pull. <laughs> she just loose leash walks just because it's more comfortable that way. And she really wants to be next to me. And she's looking at me all the time, like, what would you like me to do? Should I be here? Should I be here? You know, (laughs) but she's a little, and she has not ever tipped over into any real fear or reactivity, but I can tell that she's cautious, you know, she's right there. She's, she's cautious. And so it'll be interesting to see, and this will maybe tie into another one of Anna's questions. I think she asked about how do we determine what results are. That was exactly what I was about to ask. <laughs> yeah. So go for it. So so I would like to pair her with a less sensitive dog. I have, you know, I'm looking for one that's going to crash into the umbrella. <laughs> um, and just, you know, very, very brave kind of dog. And then, and then I really, this is going to be, um, uh, I'm going to really track exactly, try to trace exactly what and as many of those puppies that I can know and, and observe and also hear back on how that goes. I really want to try to get a sense of, cause I, I know her very well and I'm going to choose a stud I know very well who balances that. And, and it's not that she's not good, but I just want to see if at, cause I, I really don't feel like we know for sure when you try to balance, when you pair dogs and you try to balance traits, how successful is that? Do you just get some puppies that are more sensitive and some that are more oblivious? Or do you get do you get some that are in the middle? You know, I know that we, we assume, right, that, I mean, you tell me, Jessica, we assume we get some in the middle and some on either end, right? I'm nodding, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then if you do that for several generations, my question then is, do you, do you, when you, so when you get to the next, so say I breed Rose to a really brave dog and I get some that are right in the middle and some that are oblivious and some are more sensitive. Do I just pick the middle ones? Well, it depends on what your goal is. To breed for the next time? Right. right. It depends on what your goal is. So if you're continuing to try to push the envelope towards resilience, then you yeah. pick the most resilient ones and you, yeah. 
But even if, though that I'm but threading the needle. Well, oh, that's yeah. right. That's what I was about to say. So, but if you're concerned about them becoming umbrella crashers, I think that's going to be a new term. We'll just say umbrella crashers. Everybody will know what we mean. If you're concerned about the umbrella crashers, then you pick the middle ones, right? So it just depends on which direction you want to go. And I might and, just and, read the yeah. umbrella crashers, and you guys, can, uh, Erica, you guys can do that. I mean, umbrella I think reserved, and we'll just mix them together, and then we'll yeah, yeah. No, I'm I'm making it sound like I haven't thought it through. I'm worried now that I sound too casual. But these are this is the level of detail that I'm trying to hone in on. And all all these dogs are have already I've already decided are in the top tier of the ones I want to choose from, but then trying to figure out how to make sure we hit the mark, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. And, and so that's well, so that was and that was I'm not Erica. <laughs> no, sorry. Was, she raised her hand. But that was, My fault. That was Anna's. But that was Anna's question: was how do you assess it? So mm-hmm. you're not, you're not living with these dogs. Although one thing that Erica mentioned is that she often has dogs over to stay with her, which I'm, might be yeah, one I'm way not, you do it. I'm not breeding any. I I will only breed dogs that are owned by people I know who are trainers or who I have spent a good amount of time with. That's mm-hmm. that's I'm. Um, and that's the point I'm at just because, so the question of how do we evaluate it is a really big, important question and a big controversial question. Cause I know that there's a, there there's justifiably reasonably. So there's a lot of people who want to know, how are we proving that the dogs have these temperaments that we say they do? How do we know how to evaluate it? And then how do we actually verify that it's true right and there's no there's no by titles. some third party right there's, there's no, no titles. titles for being a good companion right well i mean there's, there's cgc there's... but eh. yeah. <laughs> we all are like eh, it's that's like a really low bar <laughs> we've talked about this quite a bit in the facebook group and i really i really want to um i really think therapy dog certification is good and i'm working on that with two of my dogs right now um but I don't think it even that necessarily proves all these intangible things that, because I see a wide variety of dogs passing that as well. And some of which I wouldn't breed. I, it, it, it has value. The, the least you know, they're out in public. But like I said in other podcasts, there's a difference between me knowing for myself and me proving it to someone else. And I'm really more concerned about what I know than what I prove to others, but I, I don't deny that there's value in the long run of us figuring out a way to demonstrate what we're doing. What do you think, Erica? Yeah, I, I think, you know, as far as the titles go, I, you know, I, I think the right handler, the right trainer, the right, you know, the right human can mm-hmm. get titles on many a dog. And, and I've been a CGC evaluator for very long time. And I can assure you that dogs that pass the test do not correlate with dogs that I think are appropriate to be right. bred. Because you, you can train, you can train a that, dog to do a lot of stuff. Yeah. And, and also yeah. the dogs that fail the test often fail because they're too social. They're I mean, balls. a lot of the dogs, yeah. when I, you know, yeah. I do, I do tests several times a year and, and frequently have dogs that just don't pass the test because they just are so excited to see the person that they jump on them. And that is not a breeding disqualifier for me. <laughs> right. uh, Especially in not in an 18 form. month old or something. Right. No. That's right. 
And and there are plenty of dogs that I pass who the you know the handler is just brilliant and has done an amazing job working with that dog. And we all hold our breaths, and that dog passes, and it's fantastic. But that does not mean that that dog is is even maybe even that appropriate right. to to be in right. some of these situations. They passed the test. They did the thing. They did. They checked the boxes on the day. They did the thing. That's fantastic. So for me, the, it, it, I think you know I think what Carolyn said is true. I need I need to know that the dog is appropriate to to pass on. And so I'm not concerned at all about titles or our kind of, you know, what I would say is kind of arbitrary sometimes um, assessments of what the arbitrary is not the right word. Um, but, uh, you know, it's very specific on the day test circumstances, kind of um, evaluations of the dog's ability. I want to know what the, how that dog lives in real life, because my goals for the dog are I want a dog who's easy to live with and easy to um, can can do real, you know, functional in real life situations. And so that's how we make our assessments. So all of our puppies, we are in contact with all of our puppy people. Now, granted, we've only got three litters, but we talk to all of those people. Um, there are a couple people that maybe we only talk to once a year. You know, and those are the people we're like, oh, gosh, I wonder how they're doing. We've only talked, you know, it's been eight months since we've spoken to them. Mm -hmm. um, I probably have text threads on my phone right this minute of six to eight of our puppy households where they send us pictures of what their puppies are up to. Um, and mm -hmm. so what I want to know when I'm assessing whether this pup, this, these, the, a dog is going to be a dog I want to breed again, I'm looking at um, how much trouble are those people having? Yeah. Are they are they needing our help as trainers or, right. you know, are they checking in and telling us how how great the dog is? Are they telling right. us how easy the dog is? Are they having trouble with crate training or can they leave the dog? Can you know, can they leave the dog alone? Um, is the dog Separation anxiety is on that list that we didn't really touch on as another negative. That's a big deal. Yeah, I realized yeah. that earlier, too. Yeah, yeah. that's a huge yeah. one. Um, and that's thunderstorm you know, phobia, confidence, mm -hmm. really sensitivity. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. 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 So, so I want to know, um, you know, is the dog having trouble with other dogs? You know, we've got people who take the dogs to the dog park or have a, you know, neighborhood dog park or, or whatever. Are they having trouble with kids if they're family dogs? Um, you know, I, I want to know what, what kinds of things that they're, are there things that they're concerned about or complaining about or are, or are they just constantly reporting that the dog's going out and doing things in public and having a grand old life. And so not only if, if I want to breed one of my dogs, I don't want to know just how my dog is doing in my house, living with two trainers. I need to know how are mm -hmm. that dog's litter mates doing? How does the whole litter look as a, as a profile? Because if the whole litter is looking great, I'm going to say, I feel pretty good about this dog going forward and understanding kind of what characteristics go along with that dog's genetic likely genetic right. makeup versus if I've got a, a litter where I've got a lot of concerns with fear or things like that, then I may question breeding any dog from that litter because it's, uh, that's the, the, right. the genetic makeup that could be kind of trailing along with breeding that <clears throat> particular dog. Or is it a bad match and you need to make, put them with somebody different? Yeah. Yeah. Then we, maybe. right. How maybe. do we, right. How do we, how do we, right. How do we consider that maybe, um, maybe this is what, you know, what we're seeing in this litter. So we're going to make sure that we're, you know, breeding this fearful dog to an umbrella crasher or whatever. I wouldn't breed a fearful dog, but <laughs> no, but, <laughs> but a dog that produced more fearful sensitive. dogs, yeah. you're right. Yeah, yeah. A more sensitive a dog that produced a fearful dog, maybe with an umbrella crasher would do different. That would be a different result, but then you have to exactly. decide if it's worth it or it's better mm -hmm. to move on. 
So. Yeah, and I think, you know, going back to something, Carolyn, that you were saying earlier um, uh, about, you know, trying to make some of these decisions, I think it's important to note that as breeders, every single one of us who is doing purpose-bred dogs, and it doesn't matter if we're doing mm-hmm. show or working or you know or mixed-breed companion or whatever, uh, if we're right. if we're breeding purpose-bred litters, we are all kind of experimenting. I mean, every litter we're 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 giving it we're we're giving it our best shot to to try to set things up to be as close to what we want or close to the outcome that we're looking for as we as we can. Um, and then we're going to look at the results, do some you know, data analysis right. and see, was this what we wanted? Let's do this one again. Or was this right. what we, not, this or was not what adjustment. we wanted. Yeah, make right. some adjustments for next time. And I, and I think that's true of every single breeder. We're always making these uh, these kind of experiments as, as we make our breeding decisions. Listening to Pure Dog Talk, the podcast, which I really like listening to and I learn a lot. Have you, have you ever listened to that, Erica? I have your dog. Oh, well, it's worth checking yeah. out. <laughs> yeah. um, but she was, she was telling, I don't know if it was, I don't know which episode it was, but she, the host was telling a story about a litter that she planned for 20 years with frozen semen, different goals, you know, confirmation goals. I mean, not that they didn't, don't have temperament in mind, but a very specific, I think, goal as far as a, you know, um, getting a certain result for confirmation purposes and plan this litter for 20 years, literally. And all the things finally lined up and surgical, and, you know, insemination and lots of money and all that kind of thing. And nope, <laughs> didn't go at all like what the thought process was. So you're right. I mean, I'm just validating what you're saying that I don't, I think that um, this is I've said this before too, like, I think that maybe sometimes people who haven't tried this or aren't knowledgeable about it underestimate how much of a crapshoot it is. And I don't mean to say that that there's no predictability because there is. And I know, obviously, I think it has value and that selective breeding makes a huge difference. But I also think that there is going to be variation and that yeah, every single time you're you're making your best estimate at what you think will work and then adjusting. And I think that's one of the things I have on my list of what makes an ethical breeder is that you adjust. So you you know, you make the changes in terms of direction when you need to to keep getting closer to the target because you're never gonna get it right every time. And I like to remind people as well that predictability is not zero to a hundred, there's a whole range, right? So it's right, not like right. this is a hundred percent predictable or it's not right. predictable at all. Like you guys are working in this space where predictability means it's likely that, you know, if you do everything right, it's likely that you'll get what your goal is, but there's, right. it's biology. Like there's no, <laughs> right. right. And you, and frequently you do, but there right. are times when you don't, and that is going to happen. And that is whether you're breeding mixed breed dogs or purebred dogs, you're not always going to get your goal. Right. And, you know, when I tell people you can have a family of, of doctors and your kid wants to be a rock star and, <laughs> you know, right. you just you can't control. You can't. We know this from Jurassic Park. <laughs> Life will find a way. <laughs> we, you know, we, we that is we, a great we reference. We do the best we can. Perfect reference. <laughs> yeah. So it's so there's a lot of challenges for sure. But I I still think it's really important what you two are doing. Um, and maybe you would 
maybe would you feel comfortable speaking to that a little bit? Like why, why is this so important that you're taking on these massive projects? Uh, you know, I think, I think what's really important is to recognize that over the last say hundred years, the way that we live, the environment in which we live, um, the communities that we live in, we're denser, we're more populated. We're living in different ways. Um, dogs living in the house is even kind of a new concept in a lot mm-hmm. of, in a lot of ways. Our, our lifestyles have changed significantly and it really makes sense to um, be breeding dogs that are, are targeted for those more modern lifestyles. Right. And, and that is good for the people because it makes the dogs easier to live with, but it's also important for the dogs because dogs that can't tolerate confinement or separation or dogs who need a lot of room to roam and a huge amount of exercise, there are homes that are good for those dogs, but there are a lot of of average, and I don't mean that in a negative way, but pet homes, you know, in neighborhoods, um, with a lot of stimulation around, but not a lot of space where those dogs don't do well. And it's not a happy life for the dogs and it's a struggle for the people. So this is, this is also about, about canine welfare and, and trying to help create dogs who can tolerate and thrive and be content in modern situations and trying to select. Yeah. It's asking a lot for them to live in these city environments um, in, in suburban environments where people are working all day. Yeah. And, and we want, we want them to not be frustrated and struggling. And I think we owe that to them to try to, uh, you know, create some, create dogs that can feel content. The veterinary concept is one health. So, and one called one health, sometimes called one welfare with this idea that it's important to Think about health and welfare, both of the animals that we live and work with and of ourselves and how those two things are really inextricably entwined. And so you should work, we should be working together um, in ways that improve the health and welfare, both of humans and of animals. And I feel like that's what you're both doing. That's the goal. Thank you both so much. This has been fabulous. Thank you, Jessica. Thanks for having us, Jessica. Hey, friends. Some of you have asked how to support the podcast, so we've set up a Patreon page for it. For a small monthly pledge, you help us pay for producing this podcast, and in exchange, you get a chance to suggest questions for podcast guests, and you get early access to podcast episodes. To find out more, go to patreon.com slash functional breeding. You could also help promote the podcast through subscribing to it through the podcast app of your choice and by leaving favorable reviews. If you're interested in supporting the Functional Dog Collaborative more generally, or finding ways to get involved, go to the functionalbreeding.org website and click the support link. Thanks to everyone who has helped out. We could not do this without you. Thanks so much for listening. The Functional Breeding Podcast is a product of the Functional Dog Collaborative and was produced by Attila Martin. Come join us at the Functional Breeding Facebook group to talk about this episode or about responsible breeding practices in general. To learn more about the FDC, check out the functionalbreeding.org website. Enjoy your dogs.